thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team and welcome to another episode of The Real Food Real. In today's episode, we are joined by Tony Thackeray. Tony and I discuss all things morning routine, the ketogenic diet, neuropsychology and how to apply an integrative approach to health and wellness. Let's dive in and welcome Tony to the show. Hi Steph, how are you? Very well, thank you. Looking forward to having you on the show. So before we dive into our topic today, I'd love for you to teach our listeners a little bit more about you and your background. Absolutely. Well, Steph, I've been involved in the industry now in the health and fitness industry for the past 12 to 15 years. Um, initially, I started off working as a personal trainer and, and soon discovered uh, a little bit of a niche, and that was the integration of uh, the holistic component to health and well-being. Uh, soon enough, that branched out into uh, writing and corporate speaking. Uh, and these days, I'm fortunate enough to distribute myself amongst those different mediums. So I spend time working with clients, uh, corporate speaking, and uh, also writing as well. Cool. So we're obviously going to discuss a lot of the um, topics that you deal with and also your personal experience. So what I actually thought we might do so our listeners can learn a little bit more about you is start with what your personal morning routine looks like. Sure, absolutely. So I tend to wake up around 7 to 7.30 a.m. And uh, I know there's been this uh, movement espoused in recent times of, you know, getting up early in the morning. But I tend to find that uh, I need about eight to nine hours of sleep uh, these days. So wake up at 7, 7.30 a.m., and the first thing I tend to do, I find that I need to stretch my body. Um, so I tend not to follow a strict yoga regime, but I'm very much into three-dimensional movement. So I follow, you know, people like uh, Ido Portal um, and just do a really good stretch just to loosen up the body a little bit after being, you know, in that lying position uh, for hours. Um, and then generally followed following that rather is uh, a brief meditation session anywhere between 10 to 15 minutes just to sit in silence and it really gives me a good opportunity to uh, mark out the day in terms of um, being quite purposeful and intentional about the day as opposed to allowing distractions um, to dominate um, my working day. And then after that, um, I tend to do some form of um, uh, concentrated activity, whether it be a, a run or a gym session, um, so something quite physical in nature. And I'm rather mindful to keep that to about an hour. Um, 
having been an endurance cyclist in the past, um, I've spent probably the last uh, 20 25 years, you know, training for three, four hours. So I've, I've been a bit more mindful of that now as I'm sort of uh, in my uh, early 40s. Um, and then generally come home. Um, and mind you, all that um, from that period, I've, I've generally been in a fasted state. Uh, so one of the, the things that I espouse and I really love is staying uh, fasted between 14 to 16 hours, which I do seven days a week. And that's something that I picked up as an endurance cyclist when we used to go out early in the mornings and just train in that um, fasted state. So come home, um, generally have a good breakfast and then either sit down to write or um, work with clients or it might be a, a corporate event. Yeah, beautiful. But you definitely obviously set your foundations and, and your intentions. So that's some great context for us. Now, you mentioned um, that you have quite a history as an endurance road cyclist. And um, I'm also aware that you have experimented personally with a ketogenic diet. Um, can you tell us more about your experience and certainly what you learned? Absolutely. So I... Um played around with the ketogenic diet uh, for three years. And so I was on the program for, for three years. Um, and the initial phase of uh, getting onto the uh, ketogenic diet sort of happened through accident. And it was just uh, a bunch of research that I was doing at the time in working with clients. It was sort of the period when the low carb movement and, and you know the whole paleo movement was just beginning to take off. So one of my clients uh, was, you know, trying to get into the low carb. So I thought, you know, we'll try this together. And then subsequently it transitioned into uh, the ketogenic diet. And at the same time, I was heavily uh, researching, you know, the likes of uh, Jeff Volek, uh, you know, Dr. Stephen Finney, Dom D'Agostino. Uh, and I really took to the whole concept of uh, the ketogenic diet. Um and so what I found was initially the the after the you know first six weeks that adaptive period um, things started falling into place and it wasn't until approximately month three that I began to notice a lot of the improvements and that included you know the muscle to fat ratio so as you know Steph um, when we're training um, in that endurance state there tends to be that catabolic effect with muscle, yet I was still doing three, four hour training rides and not losing any muscle. Um, and so it was really a great opportunity to just notice the different effects, uh, namely uh, hunger pangs, they, they were a thing of the past. I would have breakfast at approximately 10, 11 a.m. after having been in that fasted state uh, for 14 to 16 hours and then not eat again until, you know, 5, 6, in some cases, 7 p.m. And so there wasn't that need for hunger, which was a really great uh, benefit of being on the ketogenic diet. Uh, another great benefit was the mental clarity and the, uh, the cognition that came with that. So having that mental clarity, particularly later in the evening, um, one of the things that we notice, I guess, when we're carb dependent is that, you know, 
quite cyclical um, events throughout the day where we get that crash. And then, of course, as we know, we tend to gravitate towards, you know, carbohydrate rich foods or caffeine to give us that pick me up. Um, so that mental clarity was just uh, an amazing benefit and stayed well into the evenings as well. So there wasn't that drop off. Um, the other interesting thing from a uh, biological point of view was my cholesterol levels. Um, I had uh, Dr. Ken Sakaris, who I understand has been on your show uh, previously, look at my blood panels. And one of the things that he noticed was whilst they were out of the reference range in terms of the the composition, um, they were pre predominantly really good. So the ratios were actually fantastic in terms of HDL and the LDLs. So that was a really good um, benefit of being on the ketogenic diet. The other thing was um, I tracked my macronutrients during that three-year uh, period. So every day I would write down what I ate and I sort of graphed out all the different ratios and looked at all my vitamins and minerals. And it was a really good opportunity to see how much I was actually, um, you know, consuming in terms of those um, macronutrients on a daily basis. Yeah, right. And so what do you think was an average for you in terms of a ratio? Um, my ratio initially started off in the first year, I was averaging about 70% fat, uh, which was which was quite high. And during the third year, I pushed it up to about 82% um, and really went low carb to the extent that I was um, consuming approximately uh, anywhere between 20 to 30% carbohydrates per week as an average. Right. Yeah. And what did you do personally to adjust that to your training because one of the criticisms of a strict ketogenic diet is obviously that it is quite low carbohydrate which can be also low in the beneficial prebiotics for our microbiome health um, and for an athlete especially that it's potentially not enough carbohydrates for the muscle glycogen replenishment post high intensity exercise so Tell me more about your experience there and if you had to make some modifications. Sure. So often I would experiment with little things such as including a little bit of, um, you know, sweet potato. And whilst I know it's a resistant starch, uh, I would uh, track my, um, you know, blood glucose levels to see what my ketones were doing. Uh, and then I'd experiment with things such as, uh, or food such as blueberries, which was really quite interesting too. Um the other things in terms of prebiotics, I was um, using um, partially hydrogenated uh, guar gum at the time and supplementing that with a, uh, a probiotics, you know, such as, you know, a product like a polyback eight um, and just experimenting with, with those two. Um, and so I found that that tend uh, to work rather well. And so I could jump out of uh, ketosis every now and again, and even up my average carbohydrate from 30 grams to 40 or 50 grams. And as you know, Steph, when you're fat adaptive, your body tends to utilize, um, you know, that extra jump quite well. Um, yet I found the ceiling for me was 
around about 60, 70 um, grams of carbohydrates. As soon as I went over that, then obviously I'd um, jump out of uh, ketosis. Yeah, and I think that's some really important points, you know, that we can unpack a little bit just for the point of our listeners who might be more um, beginner in the sense of a ketogenic approach is that, you know, a lot of the criticism is definitely around the extreme nature that it can be delivered in. But, you know, what we really try and um, emphasize and educate on is how it needs to be personalized, you know, outside of more of a, you know, a chronic or a metabolic condition, of course. So it's great that you obviously had that um, knowledge to work on personalizing your approach and testing can be beneficial for those that are a bit more data orientated. And then of course, factoring in that the gut health side of things, it's a really important component of, of any LCHF template. So that's, um, yeah, some really important takeaways there. Absolutely. Beautiful. So let's um, switch gears slightly. And I wanted to talk about your book, which is called The Power to Navigate Life. So tell us a little bit more about this. Um, I know you've got some great um, endorsements. And yeah, tell us more about who this would benefit and where we can learn more. Certainly. So effectively, the power to navigate life came about as a result of the the last you know ten to twelve years of uh, working with clients. Um, and initially, what I sort of discovered uh, during that process was um, a lot of trainers, a lot of um, you know sports scientists tend to work on the physiological. Um, components of health and that is that you know if there's an injury if there's a facet of the uh, fitness that we focus on that you know if it's to lose weight or gain muscle um, in my work I was noticing that there was an emotional component there was a a, a thought component or, or a stress related component and and this accompanied the client insofar as when they turned up uh, to a session or th- there were things going on in their lives. It may have been a stress. It may have been uh, a relationship. It may have been career. And of course, as we know, when we're in a stress state, when we're uh, managing or not managing our thoughts, it tends to manifest itself emotionally. And then emotions can trigger uh, physiological responses in the body. So uh, being the sleuth that I am, I went away and uh, did some fantastic um, mentoring programs. I worked with uh, a number of clinical psychologists and sports psychologists just to to better understand how our thoughts and emotions can affect our physiology. And it was really interesting insofar as that uh, I found that when uh, I brought in a mindfulness component uh, with the clients, where there were roadblocks uh, previously, such as the client was unable to lose weight because of um, you know, a repressed emotion or anything related to stress, that using mindfulness was a really key component in order to help them um, get past that plateau or reach beyond that next level. 
Um, and it's important to uh, render a caveat here, and that is that I'm not a qualified uh, mental health professional. And in cases where the client required um, that level of service, I always referred out. Yet uh, it was just understanding the nature of their thoughts. And in some cases, Steph, it was really just about having the client talk to you about their issues um, and, and be a mirror to them and reflect that information back to them. And so the uh, offshoot of all this, of the work, is that I interviewed over 500 people uh, within the space of uh, 10 years. And these interviews were a series of questions that formed the basis from the book. Um, and I got a really good understanding of uh, what was affecting the client from that mental, emotional and physical uh, point of view. And so the book really came about as an understanding of approaching health and fitness and well-being from an integrated and holistic point of view. So not just uh, looking at a person's nutrition alone or not just attending to their sleep, but looking at what are the entire factors that constitute this person. Uh, what are the thoughts that they're thinking on a day-to-day -day basis? What is their past like? Uh, what are their stresses in their life like? How much sleep are they gaining on a regular basis? Um, and when all these things come together, I found that there was this in, you know, immediate breakthrough that uh, they began to lose weight, that their body gravitated towards healthier food options, so opposed to um, cravings previously or late night binging, suddenly that their mind and body reset and there was this um, connection. So there was a mind-body connection. And that was probably one of the best things that um, came out of this, you know, 10-year uh, period of discovery, I guess. Yeah, fascinating. And it's a really important area of health that's often overlooked, especially in the fat loss space because we're a lot of us are still very much trapped in the calorie fallacy of just looking at what you eat and how much you move in isolation. And of course, you know, human physiology and biology is so much more complicated than that. So we can't ignore the impact of the brain and our emotions. Absolutely. So what would be um, a really sort of quick one or couple of strategies that you would suggest um, a listener starts if they were looking at the emotional side of or the the neuro uh, psychology, so to speak. Sure. Uh, so one of the the tenets or the principles that I've espoused over the years, and something I practice on a regular basis, is being first of all, mindful of our thoughts, but actually writing those down and uh, conducting self-examination or self-observation. And, you know, uh, to all the listeners out there, you know, you needn't freak out. It's, it's not as bad as it sounds, but um, there's, you know, wonderful people doing work out there. And one of the, the people that I borrow a lot of my principles from is Byron Katie, who wrote a wonderful book and a program called The Work. And she asks four questions, and they're really powerful questions that look at our thoughts and our beliefs. So, for example, if a client you know, turns up and has a belief that um, uh, I can't lose weight or it's difficult to lose weight or losing weight involves um, having to go without 
you know, delicious foods, effectively they can sit down and examine those thoughts by looking at those four questions, for example, that Byron Katie suggests. And, you know, some of the questions involve, um, is this thought true? And so you answer a yes or no. Um, and then how do you know that this thought is true? And then you go on and examine, um, you know, the underlying mechanism of the thought. How do you feel when you think this thought? How does the thought manifest in your body? And so it's been my experience, Steph, that there seems to be people that have um, issues relating to food or, or a relationship to food or a negative relationship to food. It's been my experience that there seems to be a disconnect between mind and body. Um, and what I mean by that is that they don't appreciate or perhaps don't understand the um, connection or the interrelationship between the mind and body. And so what I help them to do is discover that. So I might say to them, when you think that thought, where do you feel that? Where do you feel it in your body? And so we start with that somatic experience of where in your body does that thought reside? And so that initially can take a little bit of time. And that's what I talk about, that disconnection where we're not in our bodies. We're not present or inhabiting our bodies because we've been taught to get stuck in our thoughts. So we're, we're constantly analyzing and overanalyzing our thoughts or ruminating on thoughts. And so um, this process is really about stepping back from the thoughts and not so much disassociating from the thoughts, but moving into your body, breathing, being mindful of the sensations that arise when that thought comes up. Because one of the fascinating things, um, Steph, is that when we use our awareness to observe that thought, such as losing weight is difficult and I'll never be able to lose weight. In that moment, it's like we've taken a snapshot of that thought. So our awareness recognizes it and it flags it in consciousness so that next time it turns up, it's already registered and it has less effect on us. And subsequently, over time, as we process these thoughts, as we become mindful and aware and awake to these thoughts, they have less an effect on us physiologically, and so we then process and we transcend that uh, that thought or that belief. Yeah, that's fascinating and a really great way of describing things. It's something I've been working on personally, and I think um, a lot of people will resonate with that for many different thoughts, of course, not just those centered around fat loss. I'm sure you work with a number of athletes that might have some limiting beliefs around performance or similar. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's uh, predominantly athletes. Um, I mean, as you know, athletes can be incredibly hard on themselves because there's this level of expectation. Um, and it's something that I've been uh, acutely aware of having, you know, trained uh, as an endurance cyclist. And it's getting them to appreciate why are they training so hard? Why are they pushing themselves so hard? I mean, obviously, from a coaching point of view, they need to to perform. Uh, but, you know, if they're going out and doing seven-hour training rides and then resting on the couch for 12 hours, 
then is there an underlying emotional component there? And sometimes it, it, it actually comes down to something as simple as self-love or trying to prove a point to either themselves or uh, an absent person, whether it be a caregiver, a mother, a father. And so it's really getting them to become, as I said earlier, aware and awake. And the way that we can do that, Steph, is to write the thoughts down on paper. Yeah, I love that. I'm going to do a little bit more homework on that myself. (laughs) Um, Have you got some resources on that specific topic that you could direct us to? Yes, absolutely. I'll put those uh, in the show notes Amazing. Thank you very much. And just a little, um, I guess, summary of the sorts of clients you work with and anything else you wanted to mention in terms of that integrative approach that you're so passionate about. Sure. So effectively over the years, I've predominantly worked with uh, a number of corporate uh, people. And so that came about as I transitioned from the uh, personal training component, a lot of my clients at the time were um, CEOs of companies, senior executives, management teams. Uh, And the really great part of what I was doing at the time, Steph, was taking the sporting principles in both a uh, mental and physiological point of view and translating those into a corporate environment. So in working with CEOs and senior executives, I got them to understand that you were an athlete, but an athlete of a different type, you know, an athlete that wears a suit each day, an athlete that is a leader, that is in charge of a team of people. And in doing so, you've got to nutritionalize yourself Uh, in such a way. So looking at the way that they eat throughout the day, what types of foods they're eating, um, you know, throughout the day as well. Um, Are they relying on caffeine in order to stimulate them and keep them uh, mentally charged? Um, So the principles there, we're really uh, looking at that corporate sector um, and at the same time also working with uh, athletes And so I found that quite fascinating because from the perspective of uh, an athlete and a corporate athlete, they were very much the same, but in different environments. And so the fascinating idea is that um, I would introduce a concept with the client and ask them to integrate that into their life at a very, very slow rate. Um, And initially, when I started this process, what I discovered was um, I was quick for the client to get results, yet that backfired because um, the client was really telling me um, how slow or how fast they wanted to proceed further. So I then noticed over the years that if I asked them to, for example, uh, drink more water throughout the day, that next month, so you know, we focused on a four-week uh, turnaround to implement that strategy, um, we would look at the next concept. Um, and if, for example, they weren't able to effectively integrate drinking more water within a four-week period, then we would stretch that out to eight weeks. Um, And that was a really fundamental uh, development in my own uh, professional development as a uh, a coach at the time, because it was really about listening to the client's needs and they would instruct and guide you as to how quick or how fast they would want to move forward. 
it's a really interesting way of looking at things because I'm sure all the practitioners or um, therapists that are listening can kind of, you know, I guess relate to what you're saying in terms of their personal experience and, and maybe the clients can have that light bulb moment that it, it does give them a, an insight into, yeah, their priorities, I guess you could say. Absolutely. And it, it stemmed from a conversation I had with a mentor years ago who said something really profound to me. And she said that, Tony, you are not responsible for a person's learning. Um, and at the time, I felt you know, really compelled to impart this you know, knowledge and information, hoping that they would integrate it into their lives. And in some cases, it was two years later and the client was no better. And so she said, you are not responsible for their learning, but you're responsible for the way in which you communicate the wisdom, the knowledge and the understanding. Um, and one of the fascinating things about that, Steph, is that I've had clients come back to me, you know, five, six, seven years later and say, Tony, I finally realized all that information and it's now come together. Um, so they were ready for it. And I think that's the important component is that we've got to be open and receptive to receiving the information and willing to integrate it into our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And, and more recently with um, the information that we ask our new clients here at TNN is how they want to approach things. And the question is, you know, do you want to jump straight in? Do you want to meet halfway or do you want to take a sort of a more gradual approach and you know I, I do like asking that question because it allows you to appreciate a little bit more about you know how to design the treatment so to speak which I think is really important because for you and I you know we've been living and breathing this for decades now but obviously everyone's at a very different stage of their journey and yeah they need to be ready to make the changes and they don't have to do everything overnight to get results. Absolutely. And and the other key factor too is empathy. Um, walk in your client's shoes and get down at their level. Uh, you know, a great mentor again said to me many years ago, Tony, get down on the ground at their level. And it was quite a, a metaphorical um, meaning insofar as when the client is training, be if they're doing a push-up, be down on the floor. Don't stand or hover above them. But also quite a uh, a psychological level, and that is if they're experiencing hurt, walk in their shoes and see what it's like to experience that hurt or that pain or that suffering, and then you'll know how to design their program going forward. I love that. Yeah, very, very powerful. Wonderful. I've really enjoyed our discussion so far. Is there anything that you wanted to add about maybe something you've got coming up or direct us to where we can learn more about you online? Sure. So uh, I write a number of resources uh, via a blog every week. And so that can be found on tonyfakry.com. So it's T-O-N-Y-F-A-H-K-R-Y.com. Um, and so effectively, it's a really good avenue to look at the, the mindfulness component. Uh, I'm a big believer of personal growth and personal development because as we upgrade our consciousness, as we upgrade our awareness, then that tends to stem off in different factors or different areas of our life. So we make better food choices, better health choices uh, as well. Um, and um, I also want to finish off just saying that I'm a really big proponent of uh, whole foods and it's something that I really espouse with clients when working with them. 
Um, and I guess that stems from the fact that um, both my parents, um, who are migrants, come from agricultural backgrounds, and my 72-year-old mother still plants 80% of her own food. Uh, so we grew up, my two sisters and I really grew up with that fundamental appreciation of whole foods. And in corporate events and corporate speaking events, I often tell people that, you know, food these days that is packaged is food stuff. It's not food. And we want to get our nutrients and we want to experience and um, the aliveness of food by um, connecting with it deeper than what it does for us. Um, and I'm not talking about, you know, the spiritual nature of food or anything like that, but just, um, you know, getting that mindfulness approach to, to food, uh, because when we're unwrapping something, it has that um, disconnection, you know, it comes in a wrapper and we're taking it out. It, it seems quite artificial. It's not prepared. Whereas when we're preparing our food, there's a, a closer relationship, a closer connection to food. Um, and this is something that I learned from both my parents that when we grow food and we harvest the food, we wash the food, we soak the grains and we eat the grains and, you know, the berries and so forth, that we develop that closer association and that closer association to food um, invites more of a uh, human connection to it. So we don't take food for granted and we don't abuse the food and it doesn't lead to um, health issues uh, later down the, the, the track. Yeah, beautiful message, and that's something I experienced um, firsthand myself. I I don't have a garden at home yet, but I was just at my fiance's parents' house on the weekend, and we we're picking kale from their garden to make our breakfast bowls with. And yeah, it's so powerful, and it really does give you that perspective and changes your relationship with the meal, which, as you can imagine, has an enormous flow-on effect to all aspects of health and wellness. Absolutely. And it doesn't become so transient. And, and Steph, this was something I, I learned early on with corporate individuals. And there's, you know, they pushed for time. And it's this sense of, you know, getting to the next meeting and getting to the next phone call. And so packaged foods was quite easy. And so I had to find a way to try and move them away from packaged foods and not so much prepare foods, but rely on um, easy concepts that are available to them in the, you know, uh, local food mall downstairs. So it might be, you know, buying a salad and um, integrating some type of protein into that salad. And of course, these days we have wonderful, um, you know, takeaway food services that are paleo orientated, for example. So we've certainly come a long way. Yeah, absolutely. And times will continue to get better, it seems. So yeah. thank you again for joining us on The Real Food Real. I'll direct all our listeners to the show notes to learn more about you and we hope to speak to you again soon. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Steph. Thank you. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.